Behold, Ahasuerus, Xerxes the Great. Under Xerxes, the empire prospered, and so did the Jews, who did not return to Jerusalem. Among these Jews was a family of the tribe of Benjamin. They gathered all they could scrape together and headed out from Babylon for the richest city the world had ever known, the Persian capital of Susa. During the journey, both the mother and father died, leaving a baby girl to Mordecai. Little did my cousin know that I would grow to be a woman the world would never forget. All right. Well, last week we started this journey through the book of Esther. Uh, how many of you guys love just like going through the Bible, letting the Word of God come alive and speak in new ways? Uh, if you did miss last week, you can catch it up online, uh, building right on top of that, moving forward. But uh, and just excited to have the opportunity to preach through this book at this season. We're going to see it's going to going to speak so much to even what we're facing today. Last week, uh, we started in just the first chapter of the book of Esther, and we heard a lot about great King Xerxes, right? We heard about this guy that's ruling over the great Persian Empire, right? This guy that was viewed as a god, this guy that was sitting on his throne, ruling over a region of the world that's about three million square miles. That's about the same size as the United States of America. He ruled over multiple languages, multiple cultures, multiple um, backgrounds of people, and he had uh, much, much, much wealth, and his father had actually taken over a majority of these other kingdoms and nations, and he now inherits it to rule and reign over it. We're also told in history books that he was a good-looking guy, right? That he was handsome, that he was tall, dark, and handsome, if that's what you, your definition of a good-looking guy is. Maybe your definition of a good-looking guy is short and wide. I don't know. Whatever your definition of a, short, of, of a handsome man is, that's what he looked like, all right? That's what the historians tell us. So he, he was this good-looking guy, had wealth, had power, and uh, he had bodyguards defending him called the Immortals. They had, he, had, he was surrounded by these educated, learned men that we're going to meet today. And, uh, you know, he, he, we'll read later on that, like, he would only let people in his presence that he allowed. And he, he let his scepter go, like, yes, you can come into my presence. And if you didn't have permission, he, he carried out all kinds of things because he thought so powerful. So picking up, we got through verse 9 last week, picking right up in verse 10. Is here we are on the sixth day of the feast when Xerxes was high in spirits because of the wine. Now, if you remember last week, we were investigating this party that he was having. He had invited all the nobles, all of the people from all the provinces to come together, all the leaders, military leaders, for a six-month-long party of him sitting on his throne and six months of just an enormous, extravagant spending of wealth, all you can eat, all you can drink, perhaps, uh, we're told, and and then at the last week, he's like, hey, let's, let's expand the party, let's invite all the common people to come in, so now the palace is full, and we got the men celebrating on one side, and we got the women celebrating in another area, but we also know that there was actually women on the men's side, but it was women uh, that were paid to be there, women that were hired to be there, women that were forced to be there, and so this is spring break, absolutely unhinged, unleashed, uh, just, just debauchery and sin happening here. And so they're partying for this. This has been partying for six months, 
partying for a week. They're on the seventh day. We're at the final part of this party that has been going on, on and on. And what does it say about this? Everybody's been drinking, as we heard last week. There was no rules on drinking. And then this week, then it gets to here. He goes, the king himself, high in spirits because of the wine. The NIV says, merry with wine. Does everybody know what this means? This means that King Xerxes was, in fact, drunk. He was hammered. He was wasted. He was plastered, all right? He was, he was all that stuff. And we'll see, again, that we see this. I want us to point this out right at the beginning, is that we see that the, the, the kingdom of Xerxes represents the kingdoms of this world, right? And it's this picture of this world. And in the kingdoms of this world and this earth, addictions are fed and celebrated, addictions are fed and celebrated. If he represents that this is like, this is how the world has worked, and this is how it always has worked, and will continue to work until Jesus comes and makes it right, the world system will not only give you what you want, it will give you it in excess, and a desire for more, and a desire for more. It gives us what we want, and it gives us in excess to our own destruction, to our own imprisonment, to our own giving up of our freedoms. Our fallen world is continually trying to trap you and I in indulgence, in overindulgence, in doing more. And some of you, sometimes when we, when we think of the God of the Bible, some of you, if you're honest, you get frustrated. You're like, the God of the Bible just says no. He says no all the time, and I want a yes, and he says no. Well, he is a good father, and a good father tells his children no when it is leading to a harm themselves, harm others, to destruction, to, to entrapping themselves in addictions. So God says no, and Satan, the enemy, guess what he'll say? Yes, 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 more, yes, more, because he knows that the sin and the indulgence will lead to your own captivity. And so here is Xerxes giving the people what they want, not what they need. He's giving them an excess of what they want and not what they need. He's not leading as a good king. He's giving them overindulgence. Here the party is coming to an end. On the seventh day of the feast, King Xerxes was high in spirits because of the wine. And he told his seven eunuchs who attended him. And you can have fun with those names. Me Human is my favorite. And Bigtha. Bigtha was the first uh, Persian rapper that was out there. Like he was a Bigtha. Was one of the rappers. Part of his, his eunuch crew there. And so he says to the, to the seven eunuchs, bring Queen Vashti. To him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was very beautiful. Another thing that we see in the fallen kingdoms of this world that represents our world is that in this world there's great perversion and there's great control. King Xerxes has these men that are around him that he has forced to be eunuchs. Control, power. Because remember, we talked about last week, is that in Xerxes and his father himself also, in order to show his great influence, to show his great power, to show how mighty he was, he had many multiple wives practice polygamy. Sometimes these wives were simply chosen because of 
political purposes, like her father was a king of a nation that he wanted to overtake, so instead of going with military forces, like, I'll just marry your daughter, and we'll unite the kingdoms together this way, and you'll still reign under me as my father-in-law, and, and bringing these things together, so it wasn't always mutual love, it wasn't always mutual affection, it was taken by force, or, or and, and taken in a way of expanding the kingdom. Others will see throughout the history of Xerxes, and what happens in the book of Esther is women, young women that he found attractive, he simply took them and said, hey, come into my harem, come and live with hundreds of other women, and just for my pleasure, and he had a harem filled with concubines and other women that were chosen, not because of love, not because of commitment and affection, but because of selfish purposes and gain, and to ensure that these women, who would, some of them would maybe only be with him one time in their life, maybe one time a year, to ensure that these women did not fall in love with someone else, did not have a child with someone else, did not, did not create family with someone else. He would only allow eunuchs, men that he would castrate, to be the ones that worked in their presence. Here he is preventing, preventing men from continuing in family and love. And so under Xerxes, men are castrated and women are mistreated. At the conclusion of this party, here's the grand finality as he says, Bring out Queen Vashti before the king with a royal crown. And some commentators, including in the, the Midrash, which is the, the Jewish commentaries from the first and second century, they would add to this and they would say that the men were quite possibly sitting around drunk, talking about which which nation, which region that the empire Persia ruled over had the most beautiful women? Which one, which one has the most beautiful women? Oh, the ones from Egypt, the ones from Sudan. No, the ones from Iran, the ones from all these. Like, who has the most beautiful women? And they're arguing all this stuff. And, and he wants to tell everybody, no, you don't got it. They're drunk. They're, they're arguing. He goes, I have the most beautiful wife. I want to show you how beautiful my wife is. So here's the deal. He's drunk. The guys are drunk. They've been partying for six months. He's, he's sitting on his throne and he decides, it's time to show off my beautiful wife. Commentators would go on to say that he actually requests her to come in wearing only the crown, either undressed or certainly underdressed. It even says right there, he wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. So here he is, hammered, drunk, bunch of soldiers, but bunch of common people, and says, hey, this is a good moment to parade my wife out here undressed or underdressed. How many of you think that sounds like a terrible request from a husband, right? Terrible request, right? Then says this, but when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. So to think about this for a moment. Okay, just, just imagine these seven eunuchs are like told by King Xerxes, hey, go get my wife, tell her to come out here and take a little stroll, take a little dance uh, in, in front of the men. And so these guys go and they say, hey, hey, it's time, the party's wrapping up and King Xerxes would like for you to come and do a little stroll. And she says, um, no, I'm not going to do it, not going to go. 
And they're like, um, no, you, no, did you hear what we said? This is, this is King Xerxes. This is the most powerful man in the world. This is the man who sits on a throne, who says to his God, nobody ever says no to him. No, you cannot say no. He's like, she's like, well, there's a first time for everything. No, I am not coming. Tell him to take his own stroll down the line and that the guys can look at him. And so she says, I'm not coming. Now, could you imagine, I could imagine these seven guys, sometimes it's good to have a little imagination when you read the Bible, like these seven guys coming back from, from the, the women's party where, the, where she's at, and they're like, oh my gosh, are you going to tell him? Am I going to tell him? Hey, let's play paper, rock, scissors. Who's going to tell the mad king that his wife is not coming out there? And they're like, oh my gosh, what's he going to do to us? And they're like, oh my gosh, well, we're already eunuchs. What else can he do to us? Our life is already pretty bad. Like, I mean, I guess I'll say it because there's, you know, I, I mean, so here, here it is. And like, here's this guy. And it says this, says, when they said she was, did not come, how did the king respond? Furious and burned with anger. Okay, Xerxes. He is an egotistical, power-tripping guy that's drunk, and now he's angry. How many of you guys know that's what a party needs? Another angry, drunk guy, right? Like, they need an angry, drunk guy in this moment, right? And she's like, like, here he is. He burned with anger. And why is he burning with anger? Because he's humiliated. He's humiliated in front of all these people that he's been trying to impress for six months, trying to impress him of all of his wealth, all of his power, all of this, the most powerful man who rules over the, the largest region of the world at this time, and he cannot not get his wife to do what he wants. How many of you men go, that explains my life, right? <laughs> I am influential. I have, I have done great things, but controlling my wife is something that is impossible, Right? So here he is. There, you didn't know you related with King Xerxes, right? I, there you go. So she says, no. And you know, I, I feel like the book is labeled after Esther, but I feel like Vashti doesn't get much props in the Bible, right? Like, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's thinking bold what she did, right? This is a bold, courageous decision that she makes in that moment. And, and, and we're not, there's no indication that she's a believer. There's no indication that she's a follower of the God of the Bible. It, it, in fact, we'd probably assume that she's a Zoroastrian. She didn't worship the God of the Bible. And the Bible's not saying she's godly, but she did make a very bold decision to say no to the most powerful man in the world. And some studies and commentators have twisted this to say that Vashti is actually a poor example of a wife. They have said that she's a poor example of a wife because wives, they've taken the other context, that wives are to be submitted to their husband. Wives are to obey their husbands. Wives are to respect their husbands, defer to their husbands. And so he makes this decree and says no, and it happens publicly in front of all these other men, and if he's, she humiliated him and shamed him, and a woman should never do that. There are commentaries that have argued that Vashti was wrong in saying no. To her husband. How many would you agree with that perspective? Yeah, no. I don't. How many would say, no way, like she was right. She did the right thing, the godly thing, the noble thing, the honorable thing, the moral thing. Because what he had asked was terrible. The text says right there, so men can gaze upon her beauty. We need to understand this. That submission does not include submitting to things that are degrading humiliating, or endangering. If your husband asks you to disobey the Lord, you need to remember that he is not the highest authority in your life. That is the good news of the Bible. That is the good news of Christianity, is that there's a king above the kings, there's a better husband above your husband, and there's one that we obey his rules first, the Lord of lords. Men, 
we are given only derivative authority. That means authority by which one person enables another person to do or act on his behalf. So man, when we are leading, we are leading and we are guiding by God's God has stewarded, given us authority over it, right? So any leader in capacity, male or female, anyone, anyone in those capacities in all different levels of leadership, it's derivative authority, not innate authority. So a husband, a father, doesn't have innate authority. It's only given by God. It's borrowed from God. And if we men and this man and other men are disobeying, disregarding, dishonoring the Lord, then it should not be obeyed because there's authority the highest authority says no and if they say yes and the highest authority says no guess who wins the highest authority so if your husband is asking you to lie on your taxes to steal to cover for him to participate in some sin or evil injustice the answer is no if your husband is trying to sexualize you show you off as a trophy wife for his glory, his ego, and look what I have acquired. The answer is put a flannel shirt on and cover up more and say no, right? Xerxes, listen, Xerxes thinks his wife is beautiful. Is that a problem? No, that's not a problem. You should think your wife is beautiful. Your wife is your definition of beauty. That is your definition of beauty. When you think of beauty, you think of the one that God has given you. Wives, the same thing of your husbands. That is your definition of handsome, beauty, gorgeous, whatever words you want to use there, right? That is your definition. That's how God is, that's how it's intended to be when our minds are renewed and set on Christ, that that is our definition of beauty. And so, but what he is trying to do is he's trying to parade her in front of all the other men so they gaze upon their beauty. And what happens when you gaze upon another man's wife's beauty? You become covetous. You commit adultery, lust in the heart. We, they, they compare their wives to his wife. And this is like first, cent, this is 2,500 years ago of pornography, swimsuit issue, advertising, and marketing, right? Of getting men to wrongly compare their wives to someone else's wife, to someone else's, to some other person of their standard of beauty and measure their standard of beauty by my standard, by my standard of beauty. And this leads to the lust and adultery in the heart. We've seen this in our culture, right? We see that. We see, we see even, even our culture, men using social media or other outlets to display and show off their wives in an in, indecent in way. Men, that is your standard of beauty, and that is your beauty for you and not for others. This is the way that God intended marriage to be. And so, ladies... If we understand this idea that God's authority has placed derivative authority into your husband, but he is rebelling against God's authority, it's okay and it's right to say no because we believe in the whole counsel of God and all of it should be obeyed. And the worst thing that happens is when people cherry pick parts of the Bible and try to apply them and make rules and regulations for people, right? And so the Bible does say respect, obey, honor your husband and submit to him. It says that clearly. We've seen those. We preached on those, right? But the Bible also tells husbands to love their wives to honor the Lord, to obey scripture, to be under authority, to be under the authority of the elders of the church, to be under the authorities of the elders, uh, to the, the authorities of government, and to be under the authority of the word of God first and foremost. And ladies, sometimes the best thing you can say is no. And that's what Vasti does. 
she makes this bold move and she says no. So verse 13, here we go, we pick up the story. He, drunk, angry, wife is humiliated him, he immediately consulted with his wise advisors who knew all the Persian laws and customs for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were, there you go, have your fun with those, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea. They met with the king regularly and held the highest position in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti? The king demanded. What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's order properly sent through his eunuchs? All right, this all becomes very official very quickly. I was humiliated. I was insulted. Now let's get a committee together. Let's, let's, let's see. We got to follow the legal process. Was the legal process followed right? Okay, the eunuchs were given the message. They took the message and they delivered it to the Queen Vashti. And Queen Vashti said no to the eunuchs and brought it back. And we have eyewitnesses. And it was written down. And, and we have a council. And we're all discussing it. And we know this is real. So what do we do? How do we help? This was all legitimate. And now, quickly, it turns into an international crisis. The story continues. Mimukin, what an awesome name. Mimukin answers the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they've learned what Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, wives all over king's nobles throughout Persia and Medea will hear what the king did and start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. Mimukin is like, king, this is so much bigger than Queen Vashti just saying no to you. No, this has been tweeted. This has trending. This is out. Women have started a new Facebook group, and they know that they can say no. Now, they've just been home, and it's a small word. It's only two letters, but it's a powerful word, and they've been practicing it all day that when their husbands come home, they're going, no, 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 and we're all a bunch of jerks like you are, king, because they follow your way, and when our wives say no, we're going to have wives full of contempt. No, like, what are we going to do? Because these fools are not going to get their way. What do we do, king? What do we do? It's these powerful men, powerful men around the king, all this authority, and they're frustrated because they're like, hey, we treat our wife like jerks too. And all of a sudden, she's going to feel empowered to do something. We got to shift this. This is a crisis. Is Vashti going to back down? Is she going to change? Is she going to write a letter? Is she going to make a public apology? Are we going to be able to put this out in the press? What, what's going on? So they go, verse 19, so if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of Persian and Medes that cannot be revoked. This cannot be turned around. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes and that, king, that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. <laughs> the Bible's funny sometimes. It really makes fun of sinners and our, and our stupidity that we do. He's like, sends a message, Queen Vashti, come before the king. And she's like, no, I'm not going. And he's like, oh, okay. Oh, well, she's not coming. Well, guess what? She's never coming before me again. That's your punishment? She's never going to be before me again, right? Like th this idiotic way of like, oh, that, I'm just going to punish her by not letting her be in my presence ever again. And she's like, oh, really? That's my punishment? Thank you. That's what I wanted. Um, thank you very much. I will find my way out the door, right? And so you see, there's humor sometimes in the Bible. The Bible kind of points out some humorous things of what sinful, stupid people do. And sometimes it's all right to laugh at what the Bible sees. And it's all right to laugh at ourselves and our own sinfulness and our own stupidity, but not laugh at God because then we need to take God more seriously and be like, God, you're right. 
and we're stupid. We should follow you. All right, so, um, <laughs> and the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. More worthy than, what, what, what do you think their definition of a wife is? Their definition of a wife is probably one who remains silent and just does what she's told. When I call, she comes. But listen, the book that precedes the book of Esther is the book of Genesis. And God made man and wife, and he made Eve, and he gave Eve to wife, to, gave Eve to Adam as a wife, as a helper, as a helpmate, as a companion, as one together. You guys know, men, you know, we know, it is not very helpful to have a yes person around all the time, right? That is not, that, that is a pet that just obeys and does everything you want. If you want someone with discernment, you want someone that's speaking in your life, someone that's helping you to make the right choice, that is a helpmate, that is a friend, that is a partner, that is a spouse, right? And not one that just takes your orders like you are King Xerxes sitting on your throne. And so the law doesn't, so he's like, my goodness, we got this problem, so we got to make a law to solve the problems here. We got to solve man's problems. So when the decree was, verse 20, when the decree was is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, rich, poor, of, of influence, not of influence, will receive power, proper respect from their wives. <laughs> like, hey, we can't control them. Let's make a law that makes us in charge. Let's make a law demanding something that can only be given because honor and respect can only be given. It can only be given. It cannot be demanded. And the man, if you want honor, to be, if you want honor, you want respect, be honorable and respectful, be loving and caring. And then all of a sudden, guess what? You get it, what you want, right? If you give this. So the king and his nobles thought this made good sense because they're not very smart. They thought this made good sense. So they followed Mimukin's counsel. Mimukin. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> he sent a letter to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. <laughs> That's a law now. Now we've made a law from, and I want you to see how the people are going to take this. This is a law written from a guy who sits on a throne, ruling over an empire. People view as a god. People view as most powerful. And so it's written down. It's transmitted. It's translated. It's sent out to all the regions. And like, like this is like, this is law. This is rule. Oh my goodness, this is how they received it and made copies of it. So it's in every language. Like this is the rule of the empire. And Xerxes sends out a law that is un holy. And I want us to see this as a people of God, that we need to distinguish this. Now more than ever, continue forever, we've seen it in the past, we see it throughout history, we see it in our lifetime, is that we, and we'll see this as we continue through the book of Esther, that there's some things that become legal that are not moral. The same as in our world, there are things that are legal, but they are not moral, they are in fact immoral. There are things that are made written by law that the laws continue to change. And what do the laws of the nations and the states and the communities do? We continue to make laws that make sin permissible. We continue to shift it because we don't want to stop sinning. We want to be all right with our sin, so let's make a man-made law under the law of God that makes sin permissible. Do you understand where I'm going? You get this, right? Adultery is not a crime in our state. It is a sin. Redefining marriage is not a crime in our state. According to the Bible, it is a sin. 
Murder of unborn babies is not a crime in our state. According to the Bible, it is. And it doesn't matter what the state says and what the laws that are made. There is a law above the laws of man. And those are the laws of God. And the state's laws change and the nation's laws change. But the, the, the Medo-Persian's laws change to fit the desires of men. But guess what? The only law that is ever, forever right, always right, has no mistakes, no errors, is the word of God. It is unchanging. It is unchanging. It's God's perfect law, holy and righteous, glorious and good. And we have a hard time with this because we want to justify things. And we want to understand our culture and where we are. And if you are struggling with even some of those things I just listed there, you've got to understand the God who gave us the law, the God behind it. He is good. He is loving. He is a good father, as we saw, that does say no to protect you from harm, from, from disappointment, from hurt of yourself and hurt of others. And what we continue to see happen in that kingdom, in our kingdom, is that people don't want to repent. So like Xerxes, instead of repenting, let's rewrite the law and let's reinterpret the laws and let's, let's re reinterpret what God says. And we don't write scripture, we try to rewrite scripture in order that we do not have to repent. When God's word calls us to obedience and when we do not obey, the only response is not to rewrite, not to change, not to try to justify. Our only response is to repent. When we do not obey what God has put down, our response is to repent. And that's, that's, that's where we go back. But so see, this is what we see with Xerxes. He does not repent. He tries to change the law to make room for his, his sin, his fault, his shortcoming. And say, like, we'll make a law. We'll make a rule about it. And where does this lead? Where does this lead when we do not repent and do not obey? Well, this is where we lead into the second chapter of Esther. Now, when we don't repent, repent and turn away from it. Second chapter, which is interesting. From chapter 1 to chapter 2, there's four years that pass. Four years pass between chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is in between this time is when he now leads the army. Let's go conquer Greece. He gets his tail whooped, and he comes back. Now he's humiliated. Now he was the most powerful. Now he's feeling like, I want you to imagine this guy that's kind of down in the dumps, low, low point in his journey, and that he's like, this guy like hitting rock bottom. And it's like, woe is me. What's going on? My life, midlife crisis. Here he goes. But... After Xerxes' anger had subsided, took him a while, four years to chill out, all right, he begins thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. He's like, oh, I miss my wife. Oh, I shouldn't have divorced her. I want to know how many people you know, I know, that have done that. In a moment of anger, in a moment of hurt, in a moment of frustration, they've said, I've got to get rid of them. So that it's in a marriage, it's a relationship, it's dating. I, I'm just done. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm done. I'm out. And then they look back and they go, that was a dumb idea. That was a dumb idea. What was I thinking? That was bad. He's like, wait, 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 hold on. Why, why did they get rid of Vashti again? Why, why did I divorce her? Oh, that's right. I, she said no. I was wrong. She was right. I didn't want to listen. And this is the thing. In marriages, your spouse, you can either keep your spouse or keep your sin. You cannot keep both. You can either keep, you, if you want to keep your sin, you just keep on sinning, but your spouse is not going to stay there forever because your sin is just going to envelop you completely. Or you can get rid of your sin and keep your spouse. He chose, I'm going to keep my sin and get rid of my spouse. 
And way too many people do that nowadays. So here's his personal attendance again. Larry Moe and Curly come back, and they're like, let's search the entire empire and find beautiful women, beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch, is in charge of the harem. We'll see that they are given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice is very appealing to the king, so they put the plan into effect. It's King Xerxes, defeated, low point, lonely, sad, depressed, receives bad counsel. Right? How many of you know you've been there, you know someone has been there, you've sinned, you've not repented from your sin. If you don't stop and repent from your sin, guess what? You're going to continue on a path of sin. You're not going to just stop. If you, if you don't repent from the first sin, you're going to lead to a next sin, into a next sin, and it's a downward spiral. And then when you're down and you're low and all this stuff and all this stuff, the decisions you make come from people that should not be speaking into your life. You start receiving counsel from people that have no right to speak into your life, right? Be careful who you confide in. Be careful who you receive counsel from, especially when you are vulnerable in those vulnerable moments. Be wise of whose counsel you listen to. Sucks. We can all get to this place where we don't see our sin as an issue. All we see is the other problems. And we become susceptible to bad counsel. So here's Xerxes. More, now he's going to lead into more lording over women, controlling women, using people for his purposes, for his pleasure. So how does he get to this position? How does he get to this place? By chasing his own glory. He's constantly, we see this over and over, he's chasing his own glory, and we see with him, and we see throughout the Bible, and we see throughout different narratives, different aspects, different times of the Bible, is that when people chase their own glory, it leads to their own misery, right? You, if you chase your own glory, you only get misery, Here's this guy. He sits on a throne. He calls himself King of Kings. He has a party for six months of people cheering and festing to him in honor. Oh, singing songs to great Xerxes. And he orders people to obey him. And, and he's like, let's go get revenge on Greece. And he's all about this guy that's for his own glory. It's only about me. It's all about me. Totally me. Chasing his own glory. And he receives misery. And this is so true of you and I myself included, we are all prone to the same folly, the same sin. As Martin Luther said, that sin in itself, sin is self-bending on itself. We just keep on leaning to ourselves, is that we were made to glorify. We were made to praise. We were made to worship. But because of sin, because of the fallen world we live in, we exchange the glory for God, and we want to glorify ourselves it's about me, my fame, my pleasure, my reputation, my wants, my longings, my needs. And the world has to acknowledge how great and awesome I am. It's not fitting for us to have that kind of glory. Glory belongs to God alone. Glory is intended for God alone. And when we chase the glory, when we chase the fame, we end up in misery. Amen. You guys have seen this. You've seen it. And we go, okay, well, why did he lose his wife? Because he sought his own glory. And, he, and it's impossible to live with someone that's all about their own glory. So Vasti's gone. 
The question is now leaning us into the story of who's going to become the queen. What's happening? Esther, she's exited one door. Esther's about to come in the next door. We're going to get to that next week. We'll finally get to meet Esther. All right? But the story leaves us with this aching and this longing and this wanting for more. So what do we do? What do we learn from this? Is that God's laws and, and orders, how things are meant to be, God's laws show us how life is meant to be lived here on this earth, how things will be in eternity when he is fully ruling and reigning over our lives, and so that when we don't change things to fit our needs, our wants, our desires, our lust, because when we do, we just make, we see it, we make the laws more and more complex, more complex, more complex. Let's make a law on top of the law to make it more complex, and it's still always benefiting someone. And every generation falls for the same foolish myth that if we could just get a good king, if we could just get a good kingdom, if we could just get a good king here, we could have heaven on a fallen earth. And it doesn't matter if his name is Pharaoh, Nero, Duchess, Duke, someone who's president, vice president, doesn't matter if they assume the throne or they're elected to the throne. We live in a fallen world, and when fallen, faulty, failed, flawed humans, sinners, sit on a throne, you never get a glorious kingdom. You never get a glorious kingdom when there's faulty people there. So again, this story, like so many stories, point to this crying out, is there one who's worthy to sit on the throne? Is there one who can rule and reign correctly? Is there one who does administrate the law justly? We remember where the book of Esther falls. It falls right towards the, one of the last books of the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence. And God's people are yearning and aching and longing for Jesus to come. They're longing for the Messiah to come. And listen, if we take Jesus out of this story, if we take Jesus out of this story again like every other story, we are left with moralism. We are left with do better, try harder. That Xerxes was bad, so don't be like Xerxes. Esther was good, be like Esther. And you're like, good job, good go, go have a good day trying to be good. And that is not the story. The good news is look what God has done. Look what God has done. The good news is that the real king, the better king with the better kingdom, has come and he is coming again. Jesus, even though he was high exalted, sitting on a throne, worshipped by angels, full power, dominion under him, he did something that Xerxes never did. He got off of his throne and came down to a confused fallen, flawed world, fin filled with hurt and pain. And he did not come to take, he came to give. He did not come to enslave, he came to free us. Xerxes sat on his throne feeding sin. Jesus, our God, sits on his throne forgiving sin. Xerxes appeared, appealed to our depraved nature. Jesus comes to give us a new nature. Xerxes gave them what they wanted. Jesus gives people what they needed. Xerxes banished people from his presence. Jesus never will banish you from his presence ever. Xerxes' words are no longer obeyed. Jesus' words will be obeyed forever. Xerxes tried to parade his wife, his bride, inappropriately. Jesus 
one day is going to parade his spotless, pure, glorious bride before the entire world to see. Xerxes no longer sits on his throne. Jesus sits on his throne, high, exalted, ascended to glory forever upon his throne. Xerxes' kingdom has come to an end, but the kingdom of Jesus has no end. We need to see Jesus in the story. We need to lean into that longing that we all feel. Team, if you guys can come up, we got a little more time. We're going to sing another song. I don't know which one you guys can choose. <laughs> but we just got to worship our King and our Savior. Because, listen, uh, there's this desire to justify ourselves before a holy God. This desire to call things that are right, wrong. That are wrong, right. That we want to be the one that says what is right and what is wrong. But Jesus is the one who's on the throne, is the only one who gets to call what is good, good, and what is bad, bad. And that is the place that you will find the most life, the most joy, the most peace, is when you stop arguing and fighting with a holy, righteous God, and you say, God, I don't know it. It doesn't, it, it even goes against what I think is compassion and love and understanding of the complexities of this life, but God, I'm going to trust that you are good, that you see things that I do not see, that you have a greater scope of the beginning of time to the end of time, that God, you see the, 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 the workings of men's hearts and their plans and their purposes, and God, you see it all, so I'm going to trust your word, your will, your perspective over my perspective. And when we do that, we find peace. We stop fighting against our God and trying to say, oh, if God was good, he would do this. No, he is good, and that's why he does this. Because he has plans. He has purposes for you and for I. And he wants to reveal his kingdom evermore. In a time like this, when the world is aching, it's hurting, it's fatigued. So you guys stand with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, that you are a good king, that you are a righteous king. Lord, I just want to pray before we step forward, Lord, I want to pray for marriages right now, Lord, as we've looked at this, this terrible example of a marriage, Lord. Lord, and we see that things have been twisted and turned, Lord, of even your word of people taking advantage of each other in, in marriages. Lord, I pray for every marriage represented here in this room, in our church community, those online. Lord, I pray for your supernatural work in marriages right now, Lord. Lord, that men, Lord, would be men that are honorable, respectful. Lord Jesus, that wives would willingly and lovingly and desire to submit, not because it's lorded over them, not because it's made a law, but because, Lord, of a mutual love, support, and care and affection under your authority. Lord, those of us that have positions of authority in the home, in the workplace, in the community, whatever that looks like, Lord, help us to remember and respect that that is given by you. Lord, let us never take advantage of it, that all authority is yours. We are under your authority, and we, Lord, submit to your authority above it all. And Lord, as the world gets more gray and gets more confusing, God, help us, Lord, to always look to your authority above it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.